You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. Yes, it is uh, our Monday highlight, 22 minutes to uh, 3 o'clock. It's always a date with the Naked Scientist, unless something comes up, but generally always so reliable, um, and he's ready to answer your science-related questions. Good afternoon, Chris. That's me, always reliable, or at least I try. Yes, yes, it's a good quality. It's a good treat to have, by the way. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Freezing, freezing my bum off. It's so cold. <laughs> so cold while well, you're enjoying... We've got the opposite Yes, yeah, so I was about to say, uh, while you know, well, you're enjoying suddenly, a great summer. Oh, it suddenly lurched into, oh, I forgot it's supposed to be summer. Let me make up for it. <laughs> now, now we've got all these people who have forgotten what the sun is, and so they've all gone out and kind of basted themselves and now got sunburned. <laughs> so now we're com- combating a lack of vitamin D has fast turned into a, a lack of sunscreen. <laughs> yes. Oh, dear. Uh, really, yeah, sore. That, that's quite sore. Uh, we already have our listeners lined up. There's just a curiosity this afternoon and more, of course, coming in in the segment. 011-883-0702. Our guest is the Naked Scientist. We take your science-related questions. And you can also always find the podcast on uh, the show page on 702.co.za. Just today, in fact, as we kicked off the show, one of our listeners said they were looking for last week's uh, podcast, so you can always listen back on 702.co.za. Stephen, let's start with you. You're in Edenvale. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. uh, Hello, Chris. Um, My question is this. uh, With winter in South Africa, I'm a early riser, and I go and sit outside with my coffee at about half past five in the morning. It's still dark. Mm-hmm. And my body can feel a certain temperature, which I get accustomed to. I dress appropriately. But then what seems to happen at daybreak when the sun makes its appearance, it seems to get colder yeah. uh, for a little while. Is that a phenomenon or is it something I'm just experiencing or can you explain that? It's very true, Stephen. I mean, I would one would think that the sun being out of the sky would be colder than the sun's presence in the sky, even though it's an initial, you know, rise, initial presence. Uh, it does tend to feel colder. Chris, why is that? Hello, Stephen. Just around the time of daybreak, it corresponds to the time that there has been the least amount of sun energy input to your patch of Earth's surface, and therefore that would coincide with the the coolest time. But there's another effect here, which is that when the sun starts to rise, what it does is start to add energy to the atmosphere and change the pressure in the atmosphere, and it causes air to begin to redistribute. And therefore you can actually get a cooler breeze or cooler air moving into your vicinity from areas where they're being warmed but your area isn't yet. So it is not entirely implausible that you would end up, as the sun comes up, beginning to feel a bit cooler as more air that's cooler begins to move more rather than the the air that had been more stationary close to the warmer ground during the day and was sitting there keeping you warm until that air movement began to occur. So uh, that's there's two reasons. One is the one I outlined that the daybreak actually is, by definition, the time at which the air around you has it had the greatest time since it was last heated by the mm-hmm. sun and secondly driven by pressure differences caused by the rising of the sun you get redistribution of, of more cold air past you around that time so you might experience transiently lower temperatures yeah 
Excellent explanation as always. I'm not going mad. That's a good sign. <laughs> Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. I've also observed it with hikes, hikes rather, particularly hikes where we leave quite early, you know, um, even before the sun rises, and it's often coldest when the sun is coming up. Um, Keith in Athol. Hello. Hi, Rania, Dr. Chris. Welcome. Um, mm-hmm. I have two uh, short questions regarding vaccines. Mm. Um, the first question concerns the two-shot vaccines. Um, is there an optimal time frame between the first and second shot in order to obtain maximum protection against the virus, whatever that protection figure might be? And then the second question is, how is J&J able to administer a single-shot vaccine and presumably obtain similar efficacies as the two-shot vaccines. So mm-hmm. specifically, is the J&J shot a more powerful dose administered in one shot rather than spread over two shots? Right. Thank you for the question, Keith. Um, Chris? Hello, Keith. Well, the answer is we don't know what the optimum time is. We just have to try and find what that sweet spot is between the first and the second dose. When the vaccine manufacturers were coming up with their trials and accruing data, they chose a one-month gap between vaccines because that was the best option in order to generate the data they needed as quickly as possible so that they could get vaccines into people having gone past regulators as fast as possible. That one month subsequently became three months in many places, led by the UK because a decision was taken to widen the scope of the gap because that meant more vaccine could be given more quickly to more people at a time when there was more virus around. The rationale being that the first dose conferred more protection than the second dose. Therefore, you could protect more people overall by doing that. They've actually narrowed that down to eight weeks again at the moment while we investigate or try to suppress the spread of the so-called Indian variant that is causing a problem for us in the UK at the moment, as it is in many countries around the world. And so we will get data on people who've been vaccinated with a one-month gap, people who've been vaccinated with a three-month gap, and people who've been vaccinated with an eight-week gap. So we'll get some idea as to whether there's a sweet spot in there somewhere but it will lie somewhere between if you double vaccinate too quickly you can actually have the opposite effect of vaccination and you can actually do what's called tolerize the immune system if you if you hit people too quickly with the same stimulus it makes the immune system turn itself down you want to hit it and just as it's beginning to come down off having been hit with a vaccine you hit it again to to boost it again exactly where that point is we don't know for sure uh, we will find out now you ask about johnson and johnson's vaccine the j and j or Janssen vaccine this one is a one shot vaccine the way this works is that you have one dose and then a period of time afterwards you have or are judged to have a satisfactory immune response this is this is very similar to the sputnik v vaccine and AstraZeneca's vaccine in that it is a modified cold virus, a member of the adenovirus family, which is being used. I don't know exactly why there's a distinction between the J&J and AstraZeneca's vaccine, except that it may well be that the input, the amount of virus that's used as a vector to get the signal into you and stimulate your immune system may be higher with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine compared with the AstraZeneca vaccine or the Sputnik vaccine or there may be some other kind of immune stimulus and adjuvant which is in there. I don't know for sure, but my uh, gut instinct is that it's probably a very high input dose 
mm. of the vaccine uh, vector and also the way they've constructed it, it's driving very, very high levels of expression of the thing you want to immunize the person against. So it's a very potent stimulus to your immune response and it's basically a stimulus your immune system doesn't forget in a hurry so you get a really strong response. How long that will last though, we don't have a time machine or a crystal ball so we can't race forward in time to tell. So a very important part of following up will be looking at people who've had that vaccine and how long their immunity remains intact. Mm. Well, Keith, uh, you might also want to listen back to a masterclass we did on how vaccines work. So when Chris, when Chris talks about an adjuvant, uh, that all of that is is uh, in that masterclass and different types of vaccines. So uh, it might be worth listening back to. Next, we go to Mpo in Baklu. Hi, Mpo. Good afternoon, Aza. How are you doing? I'm good. Welcome, Paul. What's your okay, question well, today? Uh, my question is simple and quick. Uh, people with albinism, uh, obviously that has to do with melanin and all that. Because I see people now bleach their skin and they make themselves darker and all that. Is it possible okay. for someone with albinism to also perhaps take something or a process that would make their skin much darker or improve melanin? Mm, so you're saying the people who bleach their skin just to correct, uh, uh, make themselves lighter. So you, which, yeah. yes, so you're saying is it possible to introduce melanin to people with albinism? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. Chris? Uh, hi, I'm Poe. The answer is that uh, the reason people have albinism is because there is a broken part of the metabolic pathway that is used to make melanin in the skin. And if you have dark skin, then you have the same cells as people with light skin, except they are making more mm-hmm. of the melanin pigment. If you have light skin and you tan, you turn up the production of the melanin pigment. And melanin is a, a big molecule that has the right structure so that it can interrupt ultraviolet light. And in the process of of interrupting it, it stops it making its way deep into the skin where it can do damage to the cells that are dividing to make your skin. And that damage could lead to cancer, which is how it is a profound and powerful defense against cancer, but also just aging of skin because of sunlight. But people who have that change in the genetic in the genetic code that causes albinism, they have a, a broken system and it is impossible for them to make enough melanin. And there are other consequences as well. People who have what's called oculocutaneous albinism also have effects in their visual system. So they, they mm. often say that they uh, struggle to see as well as somebody who doesn't have the problem. So it's not just a problem confined to skin. It will also potentially in some cases affect vision as well. The best thing for people who have that problem because they can't make enough melanin is to make sure they cover the skin or cover the skin where they can't cover the skin with clothing with something that will protect the skin like a sunscreen and be very cautious about over sun exposure. So get a little bit of sunlight to make things like vitamin D, but be very cautious about not uh, overexposing because that skin is very vulnerable to burning and damage from the sun and therefore risk of skin cancer. But there isn't a simple way to just restore the missing chink link in the pathway to give that person uh, the ability to resynthesize melanin as someone who has uh, the ability to tan or someone who has naturally dark skin can. Mm, mm. Thank you for the question, Paul. Uh, let's go to Pretoria next. Tamara, hi. Hi. Yes, go ahead, Tamara. Um, What's your question yes. today? My question is uh, on stretch marks. Why do we develop stretch marks? 
and why do they eat when it's cold in winter? <laughs> and I've noticed that um, it seems only women seem to have stretch marks. I don't know. I haven't noticed any man who has stretch marks. Men do have so stretch marks. <laughs> I've never seen one with stretch marks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they really itch in winter and I wonder how is it that they develop. And some people have them, some people don't have them. How old are they, Faith, the, t- the, the itchy ones? Um, uh, Tamara? Sorry? How old are they, Tamara, if they're still itching? I'm in my 50s, but I've had stretch marks since I was maybe 18. Oh, and they still itch. Okay. Yeah, and they still itch, and they only itch when it's cold in winter. Mm, mm. And I'm always scratching them. Okay, let's see if we can get an answer for you. <laughs> Tamara, okay, thank, thank you so you. much for your question. Where do you start, Chris? Uh, hi, Tamara. I think the reason that you're seeing them more more often in women than men is probably because the most common cause for developing stretch marks are abdominal stretch because of child childbirth. And when you grow a baby inside a, a woman's uterus, you think of the volume that, that that takes up and therefore the big bulge. The skin has to actively grow in order to accommodate the fact that the tummy's got much bigger. Now, blokes can also get a much bigger tummy. We generally call that a beer belly, of course. It's not just caused by beer. It's caused by increased too many, too many calories coming in and that's uh, deposited as fat around the internal abdominal organs, which pushes the tummy out. But the effect is the same. The skin has to grow more. If you then lose the weight, and this is the thing, not many people who put on weight then lose it and go back to being a waif again. Most people gain weight progressively across life until perhaps their final you know, months of life. But women will have a baby, in the course of having a baby, grow a lot of new skin to cover the bump, and then, then the baby comes out and the tummy's small again. So now there's an excess of skin, and the skin doesn't disappear. If, you, if you've grown more skin, it can't just disappear and it's left uh, a bit saggier. So you will end up with those stretch marks because it's basically a bit like an elastic band that was stretched and then pings back. It can coil up and you get wrinkly skin where the extra skin that you grew during pregnancy is. And uh, that's why both men and women will have this, but it's more common in women because women tend to go through childbirth that then reverses. You have the baby and then the baby, then then the stomach goes back to normal proportions but the skin is left over. Mm. Um, Why they should itch more in winter? I don't know the answer to that one, except that it might just be that in winter you cover cover up, perhaps uh, you're you're sort of hunkering down, sitting there, and and the the skin folds, if if there are any, um, are are rubbing against each other, and it might just be that that there are little traces of moisture and sweat in there that are finding it harder to evaporate so promptly because it's winter time, and perhaps that's the irritant or you're wearing more clothes in wintertime because mm-hmm. you're colder and there's something in the clothing which is the irritant because what, what we know makes skin itch is something which is a physical stimulus to the skin that acts as an irritant and that can then introduce through gaps in the skin things that you're allergic to and that's how eczema and acute dermatitis happens but it could well be that there's a range of factors here but one of them could be you're wearing more clothing and something in the clothing is, is an irritant to your skin. And that's only worn in winter. It's a tenuous one, but it's the best I can do. Yes, no, thank you for that. Yeah, that expansion happens at a quicker rate. And the skin is like, what? <laughs> okay, so what you got That's to right, do? yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Uh, let's uh, go to our voice notes now. You can also give us a, send us a voice note on 0727021702. But this afternoon, we're taking your calls for the Naked Scientist on 011 Chris, take a listen. Hi, Azar. 
This is Patrick from Edinburgh. Uh, I'm keen to know um, how the bees make this honey. <laughs> I want to know this from the naked scientists. Please, can you ask this question for me? How does the bees make the honey? Because if you test it, it's just like someone a human being a human being has branded it so it's making me have a question how does they make this honey thank you <laughs> bye started from eden oh patrick i get the feeling you're enjoying saying honey <laughs> just he loves the sound of the honey <laughs> i enjoyed the question very much um, yeah so the how do they do it you've got to step back from just looking at the jar of honey and think about the entire thing that is the process and this is all down to very successful social insects bees honey bees specifically and they work collectively as a very big group the, the honey bee colony are females and they are all responding to instructions from the queen which is the reproductive member of the colony mm. and the female workers are all there to look after her and some of the workers jobs are to tend the young in the colony some of them's job is to clean things up and others have the job of guarding the colony others are foraging bees and they all take on these jobs at different stages of their life and the bees will as they age go on to do do bigger and more dangerous jobs and so foraging is the most dangerous job that's where the bees go out from the hive following instructions laid down to them by other bees that have returned to the nest mm -hmm. and they do a thing called a waggle dance so the bees will turn in certain positions and waggle their abdomens up and down and this signals to the other watching bees where they've been and what food they found and so the bees can then alert each other to where there's particularly good sources of food what food is that? They go to flowers, of course. They're looking for nectar, which is the sweet stuff that flowers make, in order to attract pollinators like bees. Uh, in other words, the bee flies in, and in return for its sugar reward, takes some of the pollen from the flower, and then goes to other flowers and deposits the, the pollen, and that pollinates the flowers, and the bees are being paid for their effort in sugary water, this nectar. So the bees will end up flying back to the hive full, with a stomach full, and, and also pouches full of pollen and nectar and they then disgorge this into uh, the nest where they actually effectively are cooking up honey by dehydrating the sugar solution and make it much more concentrated and also it's got this trace elements of, of pollen and other things that they picked up from the flowers in it and this extremely concentrated sugar solution cannot be devoured by microorganisms because it is too concentrated for yeasts and other bacteria to grow in or wow. on so the honey is inherently a, a, a suppressant of microbial growth and the bees can then use that because it's a very very energy rich store which they put into cells in their colony when you when you see they make a honeycomb and those are hexagon shapes which are wax capped off with more wax they are full of honey the bees are making that as a winter larder so that when you when when they go over winter and there are no flowers, there's no sources of energy outside the hive, there will be a small cadre of bees that overwinter with the queen and they use that as their energy store. But luckily they make a bit too much for their needs, so what we can do is to go and help ourselves by slicing the tops off all those cells and letting the, sh the strong sugar solution drain out. That's the honey that we collect, replete with its 
pollen and, and all the things that give it its wonderful character and flavours. And if the bees are at risk of running dry, we can give them additional sugar solutions and things to, to eat so they're, they're not uh, deprived over winter, but we've meanwhile got their delicious honey. Aren't oh. we lucky? Aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky? We did a whole show on fake honey, the adulteration of honey, you know, and what is happening in the marketplace and how important labeling mm, is and knowing what sad. the source is and so on. But, you know, um, every time anyone mentions anything about bees, you have to develop a deep appreciation for what it is that they do. Chris, that was a beautiful explanation. Could literally visualize it. <laughs> well, my brother uh, has, has got into beekeeping. He's been doing it for about a decade now. Mm. And he's got 20 or so hives, I think. And um, so we periodically get some very nice honey that he's made both uh, in, in London, because he's got some hives which he keeps in, in London to get urban honey, and, uh, and also in the countryside. So we get country honey. And it's very interesting how the difference in the characteristics yeah. of the honeys, because in the countryside, the bees are mainly foraging on... Uh, arable fields which have got all of the same crop planted in them so you actually get a bit of a boring honey mm. whereas in the city you've got enormous diversity from everyone's gardens and all the plants and things they're growing so you tend to get honey which is a bit more interesting so yes. who would have thought it urban honey is the way to go yeah who would have thought <laughs> well chris <laughs> till next week a really till beautiful next time. to end things off on and that is uh, dr chris smith the naked scientist